It's Destazapod. We have some news today. We got a shipping update. We got calendars to talk about. Not like calendars for sale. The calendar of what's coming up. Uh, And also, I got your questions and I got answers for them. So without further ado, let's hop in. It is Bug Wing Week. Finally, the most toys and their Bug Wing accessory kit is debuting on the store. This is a project a long time coming. Before I hop into the background on the Bug Wing project, uh, I did want to give a shipping update. So if you've placed an order, be it a Patreon pre-order or uh, something from the store, it's going to ship out probably next Monday. Um, The reason being is I got an early shipment of the Card Slicer cards for Halloween. I thought they were gonna be here on the 30th. They're now coming in in the next couple days. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna combine all the Alexander, Normal Combat 2, Halloween card sets with the outgoing Bugwing sets and put them all together. Uh, That means you're gonna get a bigger box in the mail, but it does mean you need to wait a handful of days more. So I do apologize, but I think uh, You'll agree it's worth it when it arrives. It is also worth noting, I uh, went through this quite a bit on the Patreon, but the versions of Bugwings that uh, you folks are going to get uh, over the next couple of releases are very, very early. Uh, We did have the opportunity to get them out ahead of schedule, but because of that, you really have to heat these puppies up before you start building with them. There's a, a lot of tight fits that are still being adjusted, And there is not 100% compatibility when it comes to every head in the Night of the Slice universe fitting on the neck post for the bigger Bugwing armor. Um, Some of them fit quite well, but you cannot get the dome helmet over them because hair or other parts of the sculpt will prevent that from happening. Uh, We're still working on the ball joint size. We are still fine tweaking the helmets so they click into place even better than they already do. And there are a lot of tight fits that really you shouldn't be building with these, uh, especially given that it's colder weather now, without heating everything up first. Uh, Unfortunately, the head of Crimson Rider is not the best fit for the bigger bug armor torso. So I recommend people use a little dab of sticky tack or a piece of masking tape just to kind of get a little more of a tighter hold when you utilize this figure. Uh, At the end of the day, I had to make the decision between shipping this now and avoiding the end of the year or uh, taking several weeks to kind of troubleshoot a lot of these things and ultimately I decided this was a project that needed to get out on this calendar year. Uh, We had a sort of opening in our schedule and we had to take that opportunity. So uh, please understand it's all a work in progress. There are tweaking and and, uh, troubleshooting that will continue to happen with these accessory kits. But um, I'm super excited to get it out to everybody. Now most toys, uh, the brainchild of the great Mark Mosman, Squire the Slice in good standing, fantastic standing even. He came to me probably more than a year ago with the idea for an accessory kit that would work with mofos but be its own thing as well. And we bandied back ideas for a while. Uh, He wanted something that could go into space. 
He was always chiding me about not having clear, transparent helmets. The diver should have had one. You know, you got to do it. Um, knowing how much more technical uh, troubleshooting it takes to get a fit like that to happen, I, you know, have rightfully avoided it. But he was pretty determined to do this and pushed me to make it happen. And I'm glad we did. I'm glad we sort of collaborated on this because I think it's a, it's a fantastic bonus uh, not originally planned for this year, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a great surprise and it lends itself to so many interesting builds that you all can do. It's also worth noting there are two positions that the wings can be plugged into the backpack for. You have these sort of upright versions as you've seen in probably the marketing materials, but there are smaller, there are ports further down on the backpack for a sort of resting pose if you don't want them in that sort of inaction flight position necessarily. Now, a clever Squire of the Slice will probably buy two bugwing sets and be able to have a four-winged bugwing backpack, which I think is the ultimate version and uh, should definitely be under consideration for the ideal way to display or build this character. Along the way, we had a lot of help from the Knight of the Slice community in many aspects. Uh, Gobbly Prin doing wonderful concept art based on Mark's drawings and based on some of my takes on Mark's drawings. Newcomer Frank Cawthon uh, did the 3D sculpting and he did a fantastic job. A uh, lot of back and forth, a lot of tweaking and troubleshooting, but he handled it all with grace and delivered a fantastic uh, encapsulation of the ideas we were going for. And of course, our very own Matthew Paquet. Uh, coming in clutch and doing a ton of printing work on the 3D files so that I could have physical copies to measure, and test, and do fits with. Uh, really a crucial part of the pre-production that needed to happen and only happened due to the good graces of Matthew Piquet, so big shout out there. To set the scene, Jacob Chabot has done a wonderful one-page comic that is available on the Patreon and probably elsewhere as well. Um, the premise here is that the mofos have been activated on a very important contract. All five of them are heading into space to stop a pirate who is interfering with silicone mining industry. Very lucrative. Um, the perp in question is Crimson Rider. He works in tandem with his young daughter, Alexis. And together, they fashion themselves as some sort of Robin Hood, stealing from Orkor and using those proceeds to put money back into the miners' pockets. Obviously, this cannot stand. We cannot have that happening. And so, we find ourselves with this dramatic showdown about to happen. Um, the Mofos versus Crimson Rider and his daughter. Uh, the outcome of this is going to be largely up to you. Now... I like to use certain parts with the Bugwing. I think they fit better than others. Uh, the Verkill body works fantastic with the new female torso and head. Uh, also, Simon's parts work incredibly well. Uh, Star Marshal, very good use. The bigger, thicker bodies, not ideal because this is a much more petite sort of frame, but it does add some much needed diversity and profile differences in the types of Knight of the Slice figures you can build. So all in all, it's a pretty incredible project. 
again, I'm very thrilled to get it out to everybody. Uh, keep in mind, gotta heat these figures up. You might want to use a little bit of tape to get a snug fit with certain heads. And I'm holding shipments to combine with the Halloween card set, the normal combat zines, and uh, you know anybody who sort of pre-ordered that stuff. If you didn't pre-order any of that, uh, your order will probably go out within the next couple days. But in any case, it's a wonderful time to be a Knight of the Slice customer, and I'm very much looking forward to everybody's builds with these new parts. Now, with all of that out of the way, let's see if we can tackle some questions. First up is the Knobby Wood, which, by the way, go follow the Knobby Wood on Patreon. Really wonderful sort of uh, content experience he's putting out there. Do you have any favorite storytellers, be they authors, directors, artists of any genre, really? Absolutely. Um, uh, I would say Alex Garland is somebody who spans many different medias. He started as a author and became a screenwriter and became a director. And generally, I like everything he's done. Uh, I think his first novel was The Beach, which I read, I think it was 19 years old. And instantly it felt like an encapsulation of everything I thought about and felt and wanted to do in the world. Uh, I had never encountered a, you know, a big time professional artist who used video game metaphors in his writing and talked about Street Fighter and Game Boys and things like that, but not in a sort of mawkish way, not in a way that was like, you know, nostalgic. It was just a matter of fact. He was of this age and that's how he spoke. While I've by no means seen everything he's done, uh, some of the highlights include the film Annihilation, really fantastic. He was also the writer and arguably co-director of Dread. I think that the the director was replaced at some point, and Alex Garland came in and uh, did his edits and, and things like that. You know, don't hold me to that. You can you can sort of look it up online. Also, Ex Machina and Devs, the television show on FX, both really fantastic uh, film and TV series, and uh, they do sort of connect to each other. So something to think about. But I think generally he's pretty fantastic. Uh, I would also say the work of Paul Schrader, not all of it is great, but uh, there's a ton of amazing films that he's, he's either written or directed or done both with. I, I talked very recently about uh, some of the films that uh, I've watched. Mishima, incredible film, mind-meltingly good, executive produced by George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola. Beautiful, lush uh, visual experience. Highly recommend uh, American Gigolo, First Reformed, a more recent movie with Ethan Hawke. Uh, truly a, a, a great film. Uh, you know, all of his stuff is very gritty. It is, I feel, deals with the stakes and the politics of the real world in these moments of time. And, uh, you know, I draw endless inspiration from his work. It's a bit cliche to say, but Kubrick and everything he's done is pretty fantastic. Uh, even the films that got meddled with, like Eyes Wide Shut. If you're really into Kubrick and you're into film, I would recommend Rob Ager, who is on Patreon. Uh, he has a very charming voice. He's great at narrating his videos, but he's been doing in-depth film analysis for a decade. And I've been watching his stuff 
you know, about that long. And a uh, really fantastic sort of, uh, I guess you would say, columnist or researcher into films. And he focuses a lot on Kubrick and his entire oeuvre. So uh, if you're a nerd like I am for that stuff, Rob Ager, very, very good Patreon to follow. I also, I think he's Scottish and he has, a, like I said, a very pleasant to listen to accent and a way of enunciating all of his words. In terms of musicians, I mean, the list is near endless, but, you know, recently uh, I really have had a reappreciation, not that it's ever waned, but um, Four Nine Inch Nails and Trent Reznor and his body of work. And uh, he's recently come back into focus because he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And they put on a concert with a ton of past members of the group, people that started with him and people that are still with him. And it was really fantastic to sort of see and, and to, you know, watch the videos of them playing. Uh, just incredible. And, you know, every, again, every step that Trent has taken, whether it's doing the Quake soundtrack when I was, you know, I don't know, 16 or 17, to scoring films like The Social Network, like every zig and zag he does, generally, I really respect and, and tend to like and gravitate towards. So, um, you know, probably not a very surprising reveal, but um, that's that's definitely a, a big influence. So that is by no means exhaustive, but a small list. And, and I think anybody with any creative spirit to them or any curiosity uh, would certainly do well to go check out those people that I listed. Maybe watch, read, and listen to them in unison at the same time. You might have some kind of breakthrough. This next question is kind of in the same spirit, and uh, I like that. Gordon McKinnon Hall, what fine art sculpture do you admire or feel is an influence? That's an easy one. It's all about Giacometti. Giacometti, Giacometti. Alberto Giacometti. And, uh, not Italian, by the way, Swiss. Um, you know, I think Giacometti is sort of a day one art history introduction. He, I, I think you can see the direct influence to somebody like Tim Burton. Uh, with his work. He was kind of uh, a pioneer in terms of doing gestural sculpture, which seems like an oxymoron. A sculpture is something that takes a lot of time to, uh, you know, sort of form. But uh, he did it in a way that looked like he was sketching with sculpture. And I think that that's pretty fantastic. And I think also, you know, when you're embarking on art, you have to sort of uh, be reductive and understand the form that you're building on top of. And seeing Giacometti's work and then applying that reduction to how I drew life drawings really helped me. So, uh, you know, I would definitely point to him as, uh, you know, one of the, the old school influences. And then more contemporary, uh, I've talked about him before, Zukolowski, probably saying that wrong, but, um, uh, recently, some of his books have been back into print. I think Last Gasp out of California has been reprinting them. And they're really fantastic. Now, he was not just a sculptor, but his sculpture work is mind-boggling and incredible. Uh, there's also a pretty fantastic documentary, um, which stars uh, George DiCaprio, Leo's dad, amongst other people. And it tells the tale of uh, this artist's life. 
and it's really, really quite fantastic. I had not really known about him at all um, prior to watching this documentary, uh, I, but one or two of these sculptures seem familiar to me. I, I don't know if I've seen them in magazines or something like that, but um, really tremendously fantastical and worth taking a look at. Sadly, most of his work was destroyed in the bombings of Poland uh, during World War II, but um, still worth checking out. Next up, a question from Grant Sanders. Sorry, Saunders. What's a tertiary, random trooper, or background character design that you feel really drawn to? For me, it's the Dry Bones Dudes design from the Mario titles. The gray of the bones paired with the powder blue gloves and boots with a little pop of yellow for the ears. It's just Italian chef kiss emoji. Um, I think a couple things I would point to. One is, and maybe this isn't tertiary, but uh, Mobius's designs for the Yodorovsky Dune uh, movie and all of the characters there, particularly the Sardaukar trooper, like, those are fantastic, and, and everybody should look those up. I, I don't think there's really terribly high-res imagery of it, but um, that's something that I've always sort of uh, had printed out and stuck to the interior of sketchbooks. Uh, truly tremendous, like, visual visualization. But I think more in general, like, I've spent a lot of time dwelling in this world, and I think my mind definitely goes to... 80s NES games, as I think, you know, you've, you've illustrated here. And in many respects, Radic is kind of an exercise in this. Um, you know, I don't know how many people read Radic's little intro story. I think it's uh, at the beginning of Tales of Pangaea Island, maybe? One of the Pangaea Island ebooks. Uh, but in any case, uh, Radic is a sort of tertiary background character to a lot of the video games we played when we were kids. And that is why he has the look that he has. Um, it all comes from that sort of idea of mini-bosses and, and things like that. So, uh, in preparation for that, and even in some of the artwork for that short story, I compiled a ton of sprites from all these different games, and, you know, tried to kind of capture the visual language of what was happening at that time and place. And to me, I think, you know, Radic uh, is successful in being able to articulate that idea I had. Moving along, a big congratulations to our boy Lance Tomimoto for getting married this past week. Uh, I'm glad she said I do. Uh, Lance wants to know, my honeymoon is at Disneyland. Do you have any thoughts on the park or special memories? Um, I mean, my current thoughts on the park are really like, I, I wouldn't go on my own, but I like taking my nieces and nephews there. Uh, they seem to have a good time. My feet start to hurt pretty quickly, but, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's appreciated through the eyes of them getting to experience this stuff. Um, we went one time when I was a kid to Disney World, and boy, if I had to guess, I was probably maybe six or seven, something like that. Uh, now, many years later when I moved to Florida, 
I would go back to the park quite a bit. It's it's uh, very cheap for Florida residents. Um, all the parks really in Orlando we would frequent all the time. Uh, but I, I have this specific memory of my first trip there as a kid, as a kid of about six or seven. Um, going to Epcot and going to the England portion and there being a gift shop there that was incredible to me. They had all of these Britain uh, metal figurines. I guess the base plates were metal, not the figures themselves. Those were PVC plastic. And I had only ever seen Britons like in high-end uh, educational toy shops and things like that. So I'd never seen like a full spread of all these. And they had them all sort of set up and lined up in a row. And you could just pick one up and take it to the register and buy it. And so I bought this golden knight that had a shield with a foil sticker and a big mace and he's kind of standing in a kind of neutral pose and you know I was very happy to get that figure but also the store itself was like going to an exotic country like there was all these different candies I'd never heard of it was you know uh, the building was styled like a, an old English cottage uh, it was just magical which you know that's what uh, Disney and Epcot are supposed to be now, right before the pandemic, I went back to Orlando and I took uh, two of my nieces and my, my younger nephew uh, to Disney. And he, I don't think had ever been, I gave him the choice. I said, Noah, where do you want to go? Would you like to go to uh, Avatar World, which I wanted to go to? Do you want to go uh, the Star Wars World and ride the Resistance? Which, uh, you know, my second choice. Uh, he picked Magic Kingdom in Epcot, the most boring picks possible, but we did it. And I found myself back in Wee Britain section of Epcot, found the store that I had been to. Twenty some odd years earlier. And uh, it was still intact but it was devoid of any character whatsoever. Walking in there was a huge disappointment. It was just basically filled with Rolling Stones merchandise and Doctor Who posters. The, the same stuff you would see at Hot Topic or FYE. Um, nothing stripped of any portion of uniqueness whatsoever. It was really like it had the curation of a rest stop on the Jersey Turnpike. It was uh, utterly bland, no unique merchandise, no Britons. Uh, toy soldiers, you know, the biggest travesty. Um, and, uh, you know, I just had to say, yeah, that's, uh, this is, uh, this is the world we live in. Can't even get a decent Britain's figure anymore. But in any case, enjoy your honeymoon. Next up from Matt Connolly, what career or occupation do you admire from afar or find fascinating? Um, I wouldn't say I admire it, but I do find fascinating the practice of law. Um, prior to the pandemic, I was actually researching getting my Juris. Uh, I was going to do online courses, and I felt that that would help me essentially be able to charge clients more for the work I was doing. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't have taken the bar or sort of become a uh, official lawyer, practicing lawyer, but having a law degree could be beneficial with all the contracts I was going through and things like that. Um, the pandemic hit, I was able to sort of stop doing client work 
And I chose instead as my occupation, my project during the pandemic, to be a rock star. And we all know where that's led. So I don't know that I made the right choice here. Certainly being a lawyer is much cooler. Um, but uh, I'm not going to let that stop me. I'm actually, I'm going to start practicing law as an amateur, as a unlicensed, uninsured, um, quote unquote, lawyer. I, I don't see why I shouldn't be able to do that. And uh, I will go around and do law stuff and solve law crimes or whatever it is they do. And uh, that's going to become like a sort of side hustle, you know, a weekend thing that I do. I'll go to lawyer conventions and just kind of like, um, you know, tell people about the law and what to do. I'm pretty sure you don't need a degree to do that. Also, interestingly enough, you can be a Supreme Court justice without being a lawyer. Um, so... Maybe I'll just skip all that and just go right to the top. Um, I figure if I go to whatever the equivalent of San Diego Comic-Con for lawyers is a few years in a row, I will probably be well on my way to that position. So those are my thoughts. Next question from Valverde along the lines of Grant's query. I really like Greg the Dependable. Not just as a figure, but I also think it's cool you have no qualms about basically throwing a head on a blank and calling it a new character. It's a way for you to quickly release us a new night without getting bogged down in deeper storytelling as well as a way for us to get our hands on a material style. Something I would have sneered at a decade ago, I now find myself loving. As far as my question goes, I like how Greg is basically, other than a checkered past and a moment of glory, a relatively meaningless blue-collar worker. Do you have any more plans for more utility figures? I would love to put some si simple maintenance guys in my subsidy, kind of like how Palatoy Space Force had an engineer who seemed to go around doing readings and all that stuff. It's not all action in my toy bin. I could use some workers. Maybe a guy who wields the pipes in the desalinization cellar or an attendant who mans the elevator to the surface. Um, I'm glad you like Greg the Dependable. That was a fun little... Uh, character just kind of spontaneously created. Um, you know, often the, the sort of scope of storytelling is not on the people who are doing all the work, right? <laughs> so I like any time I can kind of uh, show that aspect of people that are actually making society kind of uh, go around. Interestingly enough, Hacker Man came from this idea. And Hacker Man, before he was Hacker Man was just a maintenance guy in a jumpsuit. And uh, that was the sort of goal uh, of that character when I embarked on it. It was, in fact, you, you do good to mention Palatoy uh, Action Force because that was exactly it. I was going through a big Palatoy um, fascination. I had tons of them. And I liked that there were just guys in fatigues who weren't in a military position, didn't really seem to be you know, contributing in a fighting sense. Uh, so, Hackerman began as exactly that. When Beefstrong entered the picture and did his concepts, the character started to take on a more sinister connotation. And to his credit, his designs were so good, I was like, I have to go down this rabbit hole. This is really, truly fascinating. Um, and he became just this big, bulky monstrosity Type character, but within his DNA is exactly what you're talking about. 
whether or not there will be styles that sort of, you know, come out in the future that reflect this more uh, proletariat uh, pedigree, we shall see. But, um, you know, I'm with you on that. I think it's it's always fun to kind of break it up and have civilians every now and then within a toy line. If everybody's a superhero and everybody's in tights and capes, uh, then nobody's special. Am I right? Next up from Thomas Bucci, of all the toys you help get made for other companies or have made for your own company, which toy lines are you most proud of and which toy lines are you least proud of? Um, you know, I would say across the board, everything I've touched, regardless of how small my role in it was, could always stand to improve. And there are always things I would change. And had there been more time or money, different uh, choices would have been made 100%. But I say that without any negativity. I am at peace with that. This is the sort of nature of not just toy design, but but creation in a larger sense. Uh, there are no finished pieces. There's just stuff that go out to an audience uh, at a certain point. So, you know, I, I'm extremely proud of Knights of the Slice. But that is a shared sense of pride because it is where it is today because of patrons and customers and the community. It is not a sort of solo victory by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it is exceedingly rare that there is an original IP that lasts for any amount of time in this hobby of ours. And to be here seven years in and still chugging along, I think is something, you know, pretty remarkable. As far as work I've done for other companies, I mean, obviously, you know, my mind goes to Retro Roto line for Jazzwares, which was kind of the first time I was given the reins to, you know, fully manage a project from beginning to end uh, with, you know, very little to reasonable oversight in the, in the matter. Uh, I think those figures are great. I think they still hold up. Would I change certain things about them given the chance? Probably. Uh, I also think, you know, for its highs and lows, Mega Merge was quite an achievement. To, to be able to go to Target and see a Glyos-compatible figure with O'Neill's logo on it uh, is wild. That is a, a crazy thing. I don't know if there will ever be another opportunity like that. But uh, I'm extremely proud of that work, even if I was less involved with quality assurance and the sort of actual manufacturing of those figures. Um, you know, I think that, you know, there are more than a dozen Mega Merge characters out there. They're in three and three quarter inch scale, which is the scale I love. And they all have some level of Glyos compatibility. I think that's uh, pretty tremendous. But I don't think any, any sort of project um, kind of gets by as a perfect Execution, You know, any and everything I've done could always be improved, could always use extra time, extra tweaking, extra troubleshooting. So, you know, it, to me, it's a bit pointless to to sort of uh, feel bad about the outcome of any of these figures because I'm just going to move on. I'm going to make more. It's probably going to be imperfect, but, uh, you know, just keep pushing that boulder up the hill. Next up, a question from Ian Amling. In your adult-slash-professional life, have you encountered a person who clearly and repeatedly crossed the line, and once you approached them about it, they resorted to a I'm rubber, you're glue defense? Specifically, I don't see myself as the problem, so it must be you. 
If this is something you're familiar with, did you deal with it? Uh, thanks, and hope all is well. Thank you. Same to you. Um, I mean, I, I, I've definitely dealt with uh, people with that sort of tendency. I, I think, like, if I'm distilling it correctly, it's a lack of inward accountability, right? The, the people that are just kind of can only view the world through themselves, but in an, in an exterior fashion. They, they have no internal accounting. They, 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 you know, do not possess the ability to, to sort of visualize their actions or behaviors as affecting other people. That could be a lot of different things. You know, I'm just a amateur armchair psychologist, but that could be sociopathy, it could be, you know, uh, a lot of profound defects in a, in a person's uh, mental state. But I've certainly dealt with this in my professional life. I've certainly dealt with this in my family life. There are people I'm related to that are this way. And uh, I don't know that I have any strategies or any tips for it. Uh, you know, I think people are going to be this way. Um, I would say having your house in order, you know, making sure you are, you know, being an advocate for yourself and not letting other people sort of spill over into you is, is super important. I think avoiding uh, getting caught up in the news or the internet too much certainly helps for having a much healthier mental state. Taking a lot of time off from being online, being on a computer. So I guess it's less about, you know, you can't really anticipate or uh, prevent external people from affecting you. You know, uh, as uh, Sartre says. Um, but I think you can make sure you are fortified mentally yourself. You know, that's different for everybody. You know, it might be, uh, it might be getting exercise, might be going outside, it might be having a therapist, it might be hanging out with friends, like whatever it takes to sort of mentally fortify you. Uh, I would say do that because you can't control the external, you can't control the other people, but you can sort of make sure, you know, you have your drawbridge up and, and all the battlements are reinforced. In my professional life, I've had uh, a lot of very bad run-ins. Hollywood is not a super healthy place. This might shock people, but there's a lot of dysfunction, a lot of, uh, a lot of sociopaths there a lot of antisocial behavior, and it is a system that rewards people who trend towards that, you know. Uh, I've been threatened to be fired several times from, you know, just people I was on a call with or just had a, a sort of client relationship with. I was threatened uh, to never be able to work in this town again. People actually say that. Believe it or not, it's not cliche. They, they think that's meaningful. Sounds like a delight to me. Um, you know, any number of these things have flared up in my more professional career. And at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't know that I handled any of these particularly well, other than I, I kind of don't react. I don't engage. I don't fight back because it's sort of pointless, especially if it's like the head of a studio and you're just, you know, a lowly underling. Um, you know, I just kind of try to... Uh, bait my time and 
you know, usually that's those are not clients that I renew with when uh, contracts are up. So, uh, you know, I wish I had a more concrete strategy for you, but uh, I just say good luck with it. Next up, Gavin Rader is here. Being that the Bugwing Clear Helmet is ABS, do you have the potential to swap shapes if you wanted a character with a more rounded dome? Or is this the only shape you foresee using? Uh, you know, that is really up to most toys. Mark Mosman, this is their project. I am but a midwife for all of this. Um, it is conceivable there could be other helmet shapes, but I think that begs the question, what is the uh, monetary benefit to doing additional helmet shapes? Will, will we be able to sell 100 more units, 200 more units, 500 more units? I think, you know, the, uh, the question is less, is it possible, because it is, but more, uh, is it financially feasible, if that makes sense. Next up from Charlie Pope, what is something you find terrifying but interesting? I heard the dark forest theory the other day, and I can't stop looking into this terrifying theoretical. Um, so if I am gleaning this correctly, the dark forest theory is about the vastness of the universe and that uh, other species would likely wipe us out if they encountered us. Hopefully I, I got that right. Um, I mean, that's pretty fascinating. I, I think there's a... The thing that strikes me as most interesting about uh, this pontification in, in this realm of like deep space and what is out there is the idea of non-organics, right? And, and let me paint you a picture. So the earth is relatively young and human humanity is incredibly young compared to the age of the cosmos and the galaxy and beyond our comprehension out in space. Uh, we are, you know, we are beyond in our infancy in the scale of galaxies and things like that. So, uh, given that we are a relatively newer civilization, but we are very close in the grand scope of time to being synthesized life forms. So, let me give you an example. Uh, when human beings first started walking this earth, which is in contention, but could be as old as a million years ago. The idea of any uh, sort of early humans having a mechanical heart would seem like science fiction, correct? But here we are, uh, all these hundreds of thousands of years later, and having a mechanical heart is relatively rare, but not unheard of. People have pacemakers, people have uh, bionic arms, people have any number of augmentations with technology. Uh, we also have watches that check our pulse and track our vitals and things like that. So the integration of technology in human beings is growing rapidly and becoming more and more commonplace. We will have bionic eyes, we will have full augmented limbs, we will have X, Y, and Z, assuming things move in a upwards and positive trajectory, which we could make an argument it's not, but we'll save that for another time. So given that modern humans are about, let's say, 200,000 years old, and we are now here in the year 2022, and we are kind of on the cusp of being digital beings, possibly being able to download our consciousness, let's say we have, let's be generous, let's say 
in a thousand years time, all of those things will be completely possible. Assuming we don't go into another dark age, uh, being a fully synthetic entity is not a crazy premise, given how much technology is integrated into our lives currently, and how much we depend on technology to survive, whether it's something like a respirator or, you know, any number of medical instruments that sort of we depend on. So in the year 3022, perhaps, you know, we are fully synthesized digital beings in robotic bodies. Maybe some of the organs are still uh, human-like or whatever the case may be. So my, my big long point here is that in 20,000 years plus, uh, you know, 223... 300 to anyway 20 plus <laughs> I'm really fucking butchering the math here in the span of roughly 20 200,000 years we become fully digitized beings so that is the that is a universal standard let's say okay so it takes 200,000 years for organic beings to become fully biomechanical beings you know, where bodies don't need a spacesuit because they're all alloy and they can exist in a vacuum and they don't need to breathe or eat. They are these super beings. Now, given that the Earth has been around for not a long time compared to the rest of the cosmos, and it takes 200,000 years to become a fully digitized creature, then anything we come across in the universe is almost certainly going to be fully digitized. There may not be organic life out there. It might be all robotic or cybernetic in some fashion. Because 200,000 years is not very long, and all these other places have had, you know, uh, in excess of, of those years several times over. Think of it in another way. We've experienced this here on Earth. Early proto indo Europeans crossed the Bering Strait, got trapped in North America when the strait uh, flooded, and we see the Mesoamerican cultures pop up. Now, when Columbus and all the other explorers interacted with these uh, peoples, these native peoples, they were very easy to be decimated. Why? Because the Mesoamericans had less time to develop technology and to develop farming, domesticate horses and cattle, and develop technologies like gunpowder and things of that nature. So you have two disparaging levels of technology and an encounter that ends very, very badly for the Mesoamericans. In the scope of the universe, we are those Mesoamericans, because we haven't been here that long. We, we are not fully digitized human beings at this point. So that is kind of a, uh, a thing, I think, in keeping with the theory you've outlined here that I think about quite a bit that is terrifying. But at the end of the day, um, it is just a theory. It is a fun sort of mind game. But, um, you know, I'm not necessarily losing sleep over it.
Okay, that wraps us up for this week's questions. I hope you are satisfied with the answers. Uh, Today, as a special treat to play us out, is a little indie band called Zed Star 7 with a new song. I hope you dig it, and uh, we'll see you in the afterlife.